years ago, the Center for Disease Control conducted a day-long seminar dedicated to a grim milestone, the 100th anniversary of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, an outbreak that killed 40 million people around the globe. The question on the table was whether something like it could ever happen again. For many, the answer was surely not, given the advances in medical science and public health. But one of the speakers at the seminar, Dr. Luciana Borio, had a very different view. Are we ready to respond to a pandemic, she asked. I fear the answer is no. At the time, Borio served on a global health team at President Trump's National Security Council that just days later would be dissolved. And her fears today seem more than justified as the death toll from COVID-19 shoots up day after day. We'll talk to Yahoo News correspondent Alexander Nazarian, who recently wrote about the 2018 CDC event on where we're headed, and we'll take you inside Verizon Media and listen to a fascinating Q&A session with former Obama administration official and Yahoo News medical contributor Dr. Kavita Patel on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So in some respects, it is worth noting that there were people like Dr. Borio who worried that we would see a pandemic just like we're experiencing and that the country was not as prepared as it should be. And yet, even as this horrible and catastrophic pandemic from COVID-19 continues to escalate, there are still so many unanswered questions we've got. Mixed messages, messages that seem to change, scientists who seem to change what they are saying about what we need to do and what we need to worry about, that it is, at a minimum, pretty unnerving. Yeah, there were a lot of Cassandras out there. I mean, you know, this presentation that the CDC did two years ago was incredibly prophetic in some ways. I mean, talking about the pressures on the healthcare system, talking about the lack of medical supplies and ventilators, all of the kinds of things that we are suffering through right now. At some level, you know, it was just hard to get the American people to kind of grasp this and absorb it because it was not so just hypothetical. The Amer- not just the American people. Well, the world. How about the world. starting with the president of the United States right. and the right. people running the United States government? Right, right. So here we are. And, uh, you know, with 2020 hindsight, there are so many things we could have done to prepare ourselves for this. But look, at this point, we have to figure out what it is that we're going to do going forward so that we can flatten this curve so that we can mitigate the risks and the the carnage that we are dealing with. And to use your word, unnerving, I mean, it is really unnerving that at this stage, months um, after 
we first heard about coronavirus that we still seem to know in some ways so little about the virus and how it behaves. Uh, you know, we know that elderly people and people with underlying conditions are the most vulnerable. But then we're finding out uh, that, you know, people who are young and seemingly healthy are dying as well. I just heard about a case today of a journalist, uh, someone who's in his you know, 40s, who's run something like 83 marathons, no underlying conditions. He contracted the virus. You know, he went through these stages where it was fairly mild. He seemed to be getting better. And then all of a sudden, his breathing got difficult. He ended up going into the hospital and poof, he died. We don't know, even the symptoms of the disease present in different ways to different people that we don't fully understand. You know, some people have very mild symptoms. We don't really understand why other people all of a sudden have incredibly serious symptoms. Why some people get it and then seem to be just fine and others get it and suddenly die, even when there's no apparent pre-existing condition that would lead to it. So it does seem like there's a lot more we need to learn uh, before we can ever say we're going to get through this. Yeah. yeah and, and just one last point, and this will lead into the conversation we're going to have with Alex Nazarian. You know, we have begun to learn recently, not we, but uh, these epidemiologists and these terrific scientists, that the virus is likely airborne and that these particles remain suspended for hours. And so now that's driving new guidance that we're expecting to hear from the administration about whether the whole country should start wearing uh, masks. So we're in for a, a long, grim ride. And, and I think it is the uncertainty that is a part of what is so nervous making for everyone. Indeed. So let's get to Nazarian. He's got the best handle on this uh, that we know about. And he's got a lot to say. He's been doing incredible reporting. And then we're going to listen to this really interesting Q&A with uh, Dr. Kavita Patel, who served in the Obama White House. There's one thing I just want to emphasize very quickly is for everybody out there, uh, we are incredibly fortunate that we have so many amazing doctors, scientists, and public health officials out there who are incredibly articulate, incredibly insightful, and clear in how they communicate what it is that we're up against. And if there's anything that's kind of calming out there for me, and I think this is the case for a lot of people, is listening to these scientists and doctors and experts. So Kavita Patel is definitely one of those, and I recommend that everybody listen carefully to what she says. Okay, let's go to it. We now have with us our regular coronavirus correspondent, Alex Nazarian of Yahoo News. So you are the Grim Reaper, the bearer of uh, Grim News for us on a regular basis. Right now, as I'm looking at the statistics, we're up more than 250,000 in terms of coronavirus cases in the United States, and the death toll continues to climb. We're at over 6,700. How bad is this going to get? Well, look, we haven't hit the apex yet, which means that the curve is not flattened. The mountain keeps getting taller and taller as the number of cases rises, and it's going to keep rising for the foreseeable future. Now, remember, the effect 
of the measures we're taking might not be seen for a little while. So there's going to be a lag. It might be a week or two before some of the things we've done, including social distancing, isolation, and other measures before those start to help us flatten the curve. Here's the question that I've uh, had for a while here, which is how do epidemiologists and public health officials predict when we're going to hit the apex? What I mean, they're looking at all this data and they're able to tell more or less when we're going to get there based on the trajectory so far. And, and how certain are they? I think they're looking at the experiences other countries have had. Uh, they're looking at sort of their extrapolation from the slope of the existing curve to what that's going to continue to look like, right? These things follow a pattern, right? And uh, I think they probably can tell from those patterns how this one will shape out. This is, you know, Trump keeps saying, we've never seen anything like this before, but that's not true. Epidemics happened and they happened relative regularity, and they, they follow a logic of their own. And so it's just not true that we've never seen anything like this before. And in fact, we're going to ask you in a minute about a uh, epidemic that the CDC studied very closely just a couple of years ago and did a, a presentation that was prophetic, predicting that what we're facing now would happen. That, that was the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. And we want to talk to you about that because you wrote a fascinating story about it. But before we get to that, I just want to talk to you about a couple of other things that are going on in the news. You made an interesting remark to me earlier in a conversation we had earlier today about how the epidemiology and the science and the, our understanding of the science is kind of racing ahead of the what the policymakers are are actually doing. And I think we're seeing an example of that unfold in kind of real time, which is this whole debate over masks. We've been hearing for days now that the White House and the Coronavirus Task Force would issue a new guidance on the wearing of masks, that it should essentially be universal. And that, I think, is based on new understandings of how the disease spreads from the CDC and the WHO, but the White House hasn't done it yet. And it sounds like there's some pushback. And to me, it sounds like there are kind of competing public health imperatives that are kind of running up against each other right now, because I have heard Tony Fauci and Dr. Burks, for example, talk about if we issue this guidance, there may be a run on these very important protective masks for healthcare workers that healthcare workers and doctors need so badly, and there may be hoarding as well. So tell us about that. Are we going to get this guidance? Uh, why haven't we gotten it? And uh, what should people understand about it right now? Okay. There's a lot there, Danny. Let me, uh, let me go through it. But before I do, I just wanted to read to you something that Dr. Fauci just said on Fox News, and, it's, and it goes to your earlier question. It's going to get worse, much worse, before it gets better. And that just is an unfortunate fact that we have to deal with. So how does he know that? Well, I think the guy who fought AIDS, Ebola, I think he was in the West Nile. I can't remember if he was in the West. No, I don't think he was in West Nile. But uh, let's say the guy who fought AIDS and Ebola knows what he's talking about. So mm -hmm. um, if he's not seeing the curve flattening, it means the curve is not flattening just yet. To go back to your question, the world has been studying 
this disease as long as the world has been fighting it, right? It's not 1918. We have incredible medical resources in countries like the United States, China, Germany, many others. So we've come to understand things about the coronavirus that we just didn't know in January. One of those things is that this particle does tend to hang around in the air for quite a while and can be spread by breathing in particles. Now, we've known that, but we seem to be learning a lot more about just how airborne it is. And that has led epidemiologists to conclude that it is actually worthwhile to wear masks in pub if you go out in public, which you should not be doing all that much to begin with, but if you are. Now, I was just looking back through my own clips, and on February 28th, Dr. Robert Redfield, head of the CDC, testified to Congress and said, people do not need to wear respirators. That's the N95 masks, not to be confused by the more simple surgical masks. He said, you don't need to wear them. And I think he was giving his honest assessment of the situation. But since then, we uh, sort of epidemiologists and public health officials have been coming around to the notion, actually, this thing lives in the air and we should be wearing masks. So the question now is, if you issue a guidance, will there be a competition for resources? There's already a competition of resources between states. Are you going to see a competition now between states and private individuals? Are you going to see people trying to make a quick buck? by inflating the price of these masks or respirators? Well, that's the danger. And Danny, being a, you know, being a dutiful reporter, I reached out to the White House right after we spoke. They said they claim, and the word there is claim, that there was no pushback from Fauci and Burks. Now, you know, I have to follow up on that. I have to check with other sources, but that's what they're saying, that it just takes a long time to figure out a guidance. And I'm sure there's some truth to that. But look, I I'm going to say something else, and, and, and even though I lack medical expertise, as does the president, I don't think he is wrong to say, if you don't have a mask at home, you know, use a scarf, use some other type of covering. That's obviously an imperfect solution, but something is better than nothing, and some kind of protective covering to prevent you from breathing in these particles or giving these particles to someone else, well, that's worthwhile. We've we, we sort of come to understand. And whatever, whatever that's going to look like, right? Well, for what it's worth, the guidance in my household is we are going to start wearing masks. And my 15-year-old daughter, who is quite a talented seamstress, is uh, up there with her sewing machine and is uh, starting to make them. Can Maybe I order she'll... some from you, uh, uh, she... from your daughter? I... Absolutely. Maybe she'll go into business. And, and by the way, knowing Shana, I think they will be fashion forward masks. Yeah. The question is, how much will they be charging per mask <laughs> and jacking it up um, uh, and before uh, uh, Bill no Barr's task no force gets no onto it? Yeah. Look, Alex, a couple of things I want to ask you. First, um, when you say the particles hang around in the air for some time, how long? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that anybody knows yet. Right. And because remember, air is itself incredibly complicated. What are the wind conditions? What is the dew point? Right. What, what sort of what is what is the quality of the air? Right. How many people are breathing that air? 
How did those particles emanate? Was it through a sneeze or a cough, right? But, uh, you know, at some point, at some point, you can drive yourself crazy. We're coming on in, into spring season. The weather's going to get warmer. Uh, are we saying people shouldn't open up their windows while they're uh, quarantined at home because the particles could, you know, factor in even through screen windows? I, I mean, how far do we go here? Well, look, I think, you know, to answer your question, the anxiety around this is understandably high. And I don't think people are wrong to take excessive precautions. As many public officials have said, they'd rather be overprepared than under. And I think that's true. That should be true for individuals as well. No, look, you still have to be in pretty close contact with someone to get it. I don't think they're going to hang around. I don't think these particles can stay in the air for very long but maybe just long enough that if someone coughs, there will still be droplets that one could then inhale and become sick. Now, what's interesting is we were very worried about the virus staying on surfaces, and no doubt it does, but that seems to actually be a secondary route of transmission and perhaps not as troubling as it seemed at first, which I'm not downplaying. You should, you know, you should clearly you know, wipe down surfaces like doorknobs. But now it seems like just breathing these particles in is much more of a danger than touching something that may have come in contact with the virus. Because then you still have to, even if you touch an infected doorknob, you would still have to then put your hand into your face, which you should not be doing, to get sick. It can't go through your skin uh, and, and sort of make you sick that way. So we have to understand what epidemiologists call pathogenesis, the way that the way this pathogen this virus works you mentioned before about how much more advanced we are today than in 1918 when the spanish influenza pandemic hit yet i'm not sure i got a lot of confidence uh, given the conflicting messages we keep getting the evolving sense of what the where the dangers are you just gave a great example of you know a week ago we thought it was surfaces now you're saying it could be particles in the air. So let's contrast and compare the 1918 experience with where we are today. And uh, starting out with that fascinating piece you did about the uh, presentation that was made just a couple of years ago to senior people in the government about the 1918 experience. Right. And this was this presentation. This is not some secret that I unearthed. It's all online. I mean, a lot of things are online that are hard to find, and I just happened to stumble onto this one. It was a presentation given by current and former CDC officials hosted at Emory University, its School of Public Health, which, if it's not on CDC grounds, it's directly next door, literally next door. So the notion that nobody could have predicted this, which Trump is very fond of saying, that's actually the opposite of true. Uh, everybody predicted this. And yeah, this was a week-long seminar, a day-long seminar. Well, hey, everybody, but Alex, everybody predicted that it could happen. There weren't people predicting that it was going to happen. No, people knew that we were bound for a pandemic. There was, there was no question that a pandemic was coming, right? Because and this is why, Michael, because we know, first of all, we're incredibly crap. The world has six billion more people than it did in 1918. Um, we are pushing further into forested areas, and that 
that makes animal to human transmission much more likely, right? Whether it's from monkeys or bats, right? We still have a brisk wildlife trade in China, which I do think needs to be ended and ended quickly because that is, you know, without blaming China, uh, that is an issue. And it's a public health issue that affects the entire world. In any case, people knew something like this was coming. And this day-long conference on the pan- on the 1918 pandemic was in many ways a referendum on how far we've come since then, but also how many gaps remained in our biodefenses. And over and over, officials there and in a subsequent webinar said, you know, we could see a real stress on our healthcare system. We don't have enough ventilators or respirators. We are not ready. That was sort of the recurring theme. We are not ready. And two years later, we are seeing the disastrous effects of that lack of readiness. And of course, there were other, there were actions taken sort of since then by the Trump administration that I think left us more exposed, right? We know that John Bolton dismissed the, um, global health uh, section of National Security Council. We know that sort of there's just a lack of expertise in the senior levels of the Trump administration. There's There are so many acting secretaries and deputies that you don't have a, even just within the last three years, there's been so much turnover that you just don't have that institutional knowledge you would need to battle this thing uh, coherently. So... Unfortunately, we were, um, you know, as actually I was talking to Larry Hogan, uh, the governor of Maryland yesterday, and he said, I didn't put this in the piece that I ended up writing, but he said, we were all caught flat-footed. And that's exactly true. Now, he likes to think of himself as being one of the least flat-footed, and I think that's correct. I think he and Gavin Newsom of California were the quickest to see this thing and act decisively. But even so, there's only so much individual governors can do, and the federal government just wasn't there when it needed to be. It's Things have gotten better, but we're not where we need to be in terms of our coronavirus response. Alex, um, you say that Governor Hogan was a little bit less flat-footed and he reacted quickly, although I think it was just this week that he ordered statewide stay-at-home order. But are there things that, that he did that show that uh, early action like that can help flatten the curve before uh, others have. I mean, our colleague Andrew Romano, for example, just published a piece about the steps and restrictive measures that governors and mayors on the West Coast have taken. Um, Gavin Newsom, you mentioned, um, also the governor in, in Washington state, where they had their first first cases and the first deaths because of the outbreak there, and that there seems to be evidence that they have contained the spread. They're beginning to flatten the curve because they took early action. Are you seeing that in in Maryland as well and and other places where governors were decisive early on? To answer your question, he did something that I think is critically important. And I was was not sure about this step at first, but now I think it is probably the thing that helped save lives in states like Maryland, which is that he, he was the second governor to close the schools. Once you close the schools, first of all, you're sending a signal, right, that this is a real emergency. If once children and also once children stay home, for the most part, parents have to stay home, right? Because someone has to take care of kids. Some people are fortunate enough to be able to have a caretaker, but once schools are closed, really a lot of parents are coming home and staying home with their kids. So the, he was the second governor after Mike DeWine of Ohio, also a Republican like Hogan, to close schools. 
Whereas, just to contrast, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, resisted closing schools until really being pushed into doing so by the incredibly powerful teachers' union in New York City. And every day kids kept coming to school was another day where the virus had an opportunity to spread, especially in a place like New York with 1.1 million school children. So I think that was critical. And Hogan is just a planful guy. He got experts to do a, a, mo- a surge model for hospitals and saw that they needed more beds. So they quickly came up with a plan to get 6,000 beds. Well, the latest reporting I saw said that actually Maryland won't need 6,000 beds. But I'm pretty glad that Hogan had that plan in place, and he may still need it. He He's also been saying that Maryland and the greater Washington region hasn't yet been punched in the face by this thing, but will be. So, Alex, let me be a little contrarian on this, because I know the sort of standard critique of the Trump White House and many other governors is they did not act quickly enough. Maryland closed its schools on March 12th. Let's go back just two weeks to March 1st. I'm looking at the number of coronavirus cases in the United States on March 1st as 75. By March 4th, it's climbing to 158. But these are still really small numbers. Can you imagine, I mean, what kind of public support would there have been for actions much earlier than than the March 12th date for closing schools, disrupting lives, ordering, you know, effectively requiring parents to find care for their kids during the day if when the numbers were so low. Sure, governors and a president could have ordered all sorts of strong measures, but with the numbers that low, it's really hard to imagine there would be a lot of public support for it. Right. Remember what I think, I think it's not Trump's nature to do this, but I think you could have, you could imagine a president, you know, taking out a chart and saying, look, let me explain logarithmic growth to you. Right now, the numbers are small. They're about to get bigger by a degree that's difficult to fathom. And let me show you what my epidemiologists are predicting. So that number of 75 is going to be 2,000 within a couple of days. And also, let me also admit to you as the president, the number is artificially low because we haven't tested enough people. And I take responsibility for that. And the way I'm going to compensate for it is by closing major institutions like schools, because I know that we actually have many more than 75 people sick, and we will have many, many, many more than 75 within a blink of the eye. So that's how I think you could have messaged it. And essentially what DeWine and Hogan did is prepare their states for what the rest of the country would soon be experiencing, which is severe lockdown orders that are now going to be necessary for weeks and months to come. Well, I get it. And certainly stronger and more effective leadership based on science would have been far preferable to what we have seen. But that said, I still am a little bit skeptical that even with what you are suggesting, it could have brought people around to the stark reality of just how dangerous this disease has been. Look, I mean, we're sort of... We're getting into the realms of counterfactual. We're getting into the realm of counterfactuals. You know, what what would have happened if 
you know, we closed our borders completely. What if, you know, in, in, we did it in, in early February? I mean, you could, you could imagine any number of scenarios. What if we did what some on the right are saying and just let this thing burn through the population without taking any measures? I mean, right. And, and by the way, you know, we, we do know, or at least there's evidence to suggest this, that the decisions that were made by public officials in California and Washington state, which is to order, you know, sheltering in place, lockdowns, whatever you want to call it, you know, just a week or two before New York did, seems to have made a difference. They are flattening the curve in a way that New York isn't. That may represent the difference between significant numbers of people living or dying. All right. Well, listen, uh, Alex, Alex, I got one final question for you. Just taking you back to where we started. How bad is this? Nixon four. Nixon four. If that's what you're asking. Nixon. <laughs> the New York Nixon four. <laughs> uh, OK. Uh, had not had not thought about that. But I know our uh, producer is a Nick's uh, season uh, ticket holder. Uh, so it probably means a lot more to him than it does to us. Of course, he can't use any of those Knicks tickets now. Hey, uh, but my initial question was, how bad is this going to get? Trump the other day said, we'll have done a good job if we keep the numbers down to 100,000 based on a a forecast of 100,000 to 240,000 deaths from coronavirus. And yet there seems to be some mystery about where these numbers are coming from and whether there's anything reliable about those numbers at all. Uh, Your best insight into that. My best insight is that um, the Imperial College of London study, which had the number of 2.2 million, was not one that the administration wanted to keep referring to because that is a big, scary number. I believe Dr. Burks referenced those numbers that you cited, the much lower numbers, as coming from the um, Gates Foundation, were research sponsored by the Gates Foundation. That's my understanding. And look, we have some, and I, and I think she has said this, and uh, I think Vice, Vice President Pence has said it, and I think it's important to understand. We have some agency here. We are not powerless against this virus. Yes, of course, it's invisible. No, we don't have a vaccine or treatment yet, but there are things we can do as individuals to keep this thing from taking 2 million or even 1 million lives. And it's just going to take, it's, they're not pleasant things, they're not comfortable things, but they're necessary things. One last question for me, Alex, as we all sit here, hunker down in our homes, um, dealing with all of the anxiety produced by this, this crisis, what are you looking for in terms of um, possible glimmers of hope, silver linings? What should people be focused on in terms of looking to see whether we're making progress uh, in defeating this, uh, this terrible disease and, and kind of global scourge? So, Danny, I'm not looking at mortality numbers because those are just going to be high and we should just accept that they're going to be high for the next couple of weeks. That, to me, is a given. I don't think there's much we can do about it because those are people who were sickened and are now coming to the hospital, getting care, hopefully recovering, but we know that some won't. So is it is it hospitalizations? Is it rates of spread? What what are the metrics here? I'm looking at several things. What kind of numbers are states reporting for positive tests? For example, I'm very concerned that Louisiana is at 26%. That is very high. 
that that tells me that New Orleans is going to be in a New York-like situation within a matter of days. I'm also looking at which governors are saying that they need supplies and what are the supplies that they need, right? We need to take care of New York. And then as soon as we've done that, we need to take care of Michigan, Louisiana, those two states in particular, but also others around the country that are starting to show signs that they, they have an uptick of cases. So I'm also looking to see our governors saying we don't have what we need, right? Is Andrew Cuomo still saying that? Is Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan saying that? That to me, when we have the right supplies in place, we can treat people better. If we don't have that, then we're, we are in an Italy-like situation where just uh, the health system is totally overwhelmed and people are dying as a result of that because they're not getting care. So I'm really looking at the governor's response. But I'm looking at, a, so I guess I'm looking at infection rates in states and then whether the governors have the resources to deal with those rising infections. With that dismal note, Alex, thanks, and uh, keep us uh, keep us posted. He asked the question. He, he, you know, he asked the question, I answered it. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, stay safe in your garage. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Thank you very much for tuning into Yahoo's special live question and answer. We put a call out on social media and on our website for your questions about the coronavirus, and our medical expert is here to answer them. I'm Alex Wallace, the head of media and content for Verizon Media, and I'd like to introduce Dr. Kabita Patel, who is our Yahoo medical co contributor. She's also a senior scholar at Brookings Institution and a practicing physician in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Patel. Thanks, Alex. So just within the last couple hours, we heard that there are now a million cases globally of coronavirus and 51,000 deaths. Could you tell us where we are in this crisis globally and where we are in this crisis domestically? Yeah, absolutely, Alex. Unfortunately, while it might seem that in certain parts of the country we've made meaningful progress, which we have, places like Boston, parts of California, where we're certainly seeing a decrease in the doubling rate, it is a very scary trend nationally that we are seeing so many new deaths and new cases each day. And that's when we haven't even had uh, kind of what I would call uniform testing, meaning availability of testing all over the country as evenly as possible. And, and then maybe perhaps in a, in a more kind of uplifting note globally, we know that at least in China and South Korea and Singapore and parts of Italy, we're starting to see declines or at least no new cases even. So we know that aggressive precautions can make a difference, which is what we're all doing right now in the United States. A lot of discussion has been about the uh, med supply of medical equipment. What is the latest on that? Yeah, so there's different layers of medical equipment. The one that's getting a lot of attention is ventilators. Um, and there are certainly reports of either kind of shortages or limitations in getting the numbers of ventilators that people need. And remember, this is something that you can't really plan for. If you need a ventilator, you really need to have it. So what hospitals in most cities and states are doing is trying to anticipate what they need, knowing that they could need more, they could need less. That's ventilators, hospital beds, also in, in high, high demand. Then we have all the equipment that's gotten a lot of attention, rightfully so, that doctors like myself have to wear called personal protective equipment, 
specialized fitted masks, goggles, and gowns. And those are still in short supply. And keep in mind also, Alex, that technically, if we were to follow the best science, every time I see a patient, I'm supposed to get rid of all of that and then put on something new. Most of us are either reusing our equipment or trying to preserve it. So that's the state of equipment. And then perhaps a comment about testing. I mentioned we've, we're doing a lot more tests than we ever have. However, if you think about 350 million Americans, we certainly do not have enough to test every American. And I would argue that one of our steps to getting to back to work, back to school, back to large gatherings is to have that access. The other thing we keep hearing different information about is masks. Do you recommend that everyone wear a mask when they go outside or is that not necessary? Yeah, and this is, you know, as of the time we're actually talking, this is changing and there are potential guidelines that are going to come out urging all Americans to wear a mask. A couple of things to keep in mind that I just talked about as a healthcare worker, those are in short supply. Do not try to get one of those. I think that it makes sense for Americans to use some sort of cloth or kind of bandana type covering, but that's really only to protect other people from you. It does not protect you from getting the virus unless we actually move to a mandatory uniform mask wearing policy, which I think, again, we're kind of missing the most important point, which is stay at home, close essential businesses, et cetera. So first question from Twitter, are there any suggested over-the-counter treatments that someone should have at home for symptoms of COVID-19? No, there are currently no over-the-counter treatments. And I would just, I'll tell you what I practice myself. There are a lot of, I've been getting a lot of emails myself about um, you know, this therapy or that therapy. There's really no treatment. I could argue that anything that helps you feel like you've kind of boosted your immune system or if you take a, a vitamin each day and that's part of your regular practice, go ahead and continue that. But do not let that be considered a treatment for COVID-19. And the truth is we just don't know. We have some studies from other very small studies from using things like vitamin D and influenza. There is a study that shows 1,200 units of vitamin D a day can be helpful in decreasing the duration of influenza. Again, none of it applies to COVID-19, but I would also just, I would say kind of consumer beware that there are probably a lot more scams out there than there is any truth. One thing I know you think is really important is mental health and keeping anxiety at bay. And I wonder what you've been telling your patients about that. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, by the way, by patients, I mean myself and my family and my fa my parents and my sisters, and we're all kind of in the same boat together, I think, Alex. And I think that part of it is uh, I have been encouraging everyone to get outdoors, some exposure to the sunlight, or if you're in a gray and cloudy climate like I am today, still go outside because just that physical act alone is going to help boost kind of your brain chemistry and feeling happy. And then I have been recommending, you know, getting through these next several months is going to be hard. And I think that some of us, including myself, are considering how we can form kind of a virtual unit. So you may pick one other family, you know, maybe it's someone in your neighborhood, maybe it's a best friend in an apartment, and you may decide that you'll take risks together but you'll actually have dinners together. And we're not talking, you know, large parties or gatherings. I'm talking to be sane, you know, have another human that you interact with 
and actually get to kind of touch or be near. And so I think we're all learning that what this new normal is going to look like. But I think mental health and and actually acknowledging your anxiety is is really important. I have to say, I've become very attached to my online yoga classes. I wonder if you could talk about the role of exercise now. Yeah. Oh, it's a great, I mean, and by the way, so many of them are doing this for free. So you can find whether it's on, you know, kind of the internet, just plain YouTube, et cetera, or actually some, I I had heard a friend said that there are some of these manufacturers of high-end fitness classes that are giving free trials. I think it's important for all ages, adults and children, by the way. And I do think that just, we know that moving your body is absolutely also going to help with that brain chemistry that we're talking about. So critical to survival, mental health. And if you're asking, you know, how many times a day, if you can every day for even 10 minutes, um, you, some of us have heard of the seven minute workout, just doing anything for five to 10 minutes can actually make a difference. That's great. Thank you. Another question from Twitter. Is it possible to get COVID-19 more than once? Yeah, it's a great question about whether or not we can go through what's called a reinfection. What limited data we have on people who have been, quote, reinfected, we think that they were actually a false negative in the first place, meaning they were in the hospital, discharged, but they actually still had the virus, so they were not truly reinfected. So we think the likelihood of reinfection is low or none. But I will say that we know that if you get COVID-19, develop immunity, that that immunity can help you not get reinfected, but we don't know if that will stop infection maybe months down the line where people like Dr. Fauci have been warning our country we will have what's called a second wave of COVID-19. We just don't know enough about whether the virus will change significantly like the flu to be different. Got it. What is the latest on um, treatments that are being tried um, for COVID-19? Yeah, there's a number. So nothing today has been kind of approved by the FDA as a quote unquote treatment. What has been approved have been a number of trials. And actually, let me back up to say people have seen uh, how the president and some of his scientists have recommended an old malaria drug and an old um, antibiotic drug. And those are also, those have been FDA approved drugs, by the way, obviously old and have been in existence, but they are not, they had not been used in COVID-19. And now the FDA has approved for those to be uh, tested in COVID-19. There are a number, dozens, literally of trials going on with promising therapies for COVID-19. But as of today, those are all still investigational. I do think we will have some early readout on data from China, as well as the trials that are going on everywhere in the world, including the United States, matter of months. We will have knowledge about treatments, Alex, before we have a vaccine. And that'll be crucial in fighting kind of, again, I keep calling it a second wave, but what we, what we had anticipate in the fall. I know some of the treatments they've been considered have um, included plasma from people who have had COVID-19. Can you talk us through what that entails? Yeah. And and just so that people kind of understand what plasma is versus blood. I mean, kind of, I'll, I'll just, the way I learned about it in medical school, plasma really contains all the parts of your blood that also mount an immune reaction. So antibodies and kind of serum as we call it. And plasma in people who have had the infection and recovered 
have immunity, like I mentioned, meaning we don't think they get reinfected. And we think that immunity to antibodies in their blood, in their plasma, can actually be manipulated and used to help treat other people who are actively sick. So it's called convalescent serum. And that has been, again, investigational only, but it is something that has been promising and a basis for a number of what I will call antibody-mediated treatments. And I think that's going to be an incredible... All of this, unfortunately, Alex, is really only helpful if you are critically ill or ill enough to be in a hospital. Um, remember, topmost of importance is that if you get this, the majority of Americans get this, do not need to go in the hospital. And so for them, all the treatments I'm talking about would not apply, but it's really for the people who are in hospital settings and critically ill people. One thing I, my friends and I all have been talking to each other about is what, and you're the doctor, so I want to ask you, is when should you go to the hospital? When should you stay home and when should you go to the hospital? Yeah, great question. And I know a lot of people are scared. So I think that the most important thing is to reach out to your doctor no matter what. If you think you are sick or just worried about what to look for, but let's get a little more concrete. Temperature or fever greater than 100.4, you should absolutely reach out to a physician or healthcare professional virtually to start with, unless you're having some really kind of time sensitive symptoms like shortness of breath, chest pain. But I would say that, you know, monitoring your temperature every couple of hours if you start to develop the fever of 100.4 or higher. Um, certainly, if you have one of those uh, kind of heart rate monitors and you notice that your heart rate is either way, way, way high or way, way, way low that's a reason to reach out. I do know of a number of people who have bought some of those um, oxygen monitors to check for what we call pulse oxygen. And it, normal levels in the, or should be in the high 90s, meaning how much oxygen we take in our body. We know that in COVID-19, that oxygen number can drop. So I do think that all of these metrics, but perhaps the most important metric is not just your common sense, but also checking fevers. All said and done, though, not everyone gets a fever. I've, I've had a patient who was just nauseous and just didn't feel right and didn't have any reason to believe she had COVID-19, but it turned out she did. So when in doubt, reach out. That's probably the best way to put it. The need to go to a hospital is really if you think you're going to need something additional, like oxygen you know, through a mask on your face, or you've seen what people have been talking about with ventilators. Those are probably kind of people, though, that I would say reach out to a doctor and see if they feel like you need to have a kind of a, they'll tell you, trust me, come in, don't wait. Um, you may also have seen, Alex, that a number of people are calling 911 in New York City. And I do really think that New York City is an example for the rest of the country. Calling 911, unless you are truly emergent, would not be my advice. Um, I would definitely reach out early to your provider just to see how hard or how easy it is to get the kind of advice you might need on whether to go to a hospital. Thank you. Um, what is the current status of availability of testing in this country? Yeah, we've got, so we have made a long kind of degree of progress in testing. In fact, um, some people may have seen, some of the viewers may have seen that there was a FDA approved 15, it's actually technically like a five-minute test that can be used mostly in labs, uh, clinics rather, as what we call a point-of-care test. However, it still is not to the degree that every single person who might be worried they have COVID-19 or coronavirus can just easily get a test. The majority of people will still have to wait 
And in fact, the CDC guidance is that if you think you have coronavirus, and even if you have a fever, but you're otherwise feeling well, that you should just isolate yourself in the home. So we do know that we've got a real kind of testing capacity issue. And it's for things that you wouldn't even think about, Alex, like we just don't have enough of those cotton swabs to take the nose sample or the throat sample. And so it's it's pieces like that that are causing us to have kind of what I would call a delayed ability to do mass surveillance. Um, but but I, I am hopeful that when we get to a point where we can talk about returning to work, that we will have testing in place so that we can give Americans a sense of comfort about whether they've had the disease or not, whether they're immune, whether they are susceptible and could be in the percentage who could still get it. We're going to need those answers before we recover. I think that's a really interesting point because talking about what are the, the marks of when we will be able to go back to work. Those are some yeah. of them. That's yeah. great. Um, from Twitter, another really important question. I'm an expecting father due September 9th, and I'm concerned about both the mother and the child. Are any studies being done about how this affects both an unborn child and the mother-to-be? Yeah. Uh, great question by so many close friends of mine in the same exact boat, um, either about to deliver. First and foremost, I think it's very important to have a very solid birth plan in terms of, you know, finding out if you are delivering in the hospital, whether you can have a visitor or not. Here's what we know, very preliminary data that shows concerns for what we call maternal fetal transmission, that yes, in fact, it's possible to transmit this virus from mom to baby. But before, like if I were in any pregnant expectant father or mother's shoes, before you let your blood pressure go up, I would just really cause, I would just say all the cases we have seen to date have had healthy deliveries, healthy babies, healthy outcomes. So do not feel kind of, um, do not feel that sense of panic. All that's being said. So now let me just shift gears to what we know about moms who have a newborn and are worried about it. We have had a number of moms who are worried about whether they can breastfeed or whether they can even hold their baby. I think, again, this is one of those cases where, yes, it's possible that contact with your newborn, if you are positive and the newborn isn't, for example, it is entirely possible that, yes, you can transmit it. But I would be the first person to tell you that we know that touch is very important for that newborn. And I do. I think that's why a conversation with your OB about what to do if you are in that situation where you're positive and you have a newborn, how to handle breastfeeding when you, sh you should be one of those women. The father and the mother should wear masks to protect the newborn. Again, masks protect someone from you. I would wear a mask in that situation. I would be very careful in that situation conversation to have now so that you don't have to wait until you actually have the baby and are very worried about what to do with the baby. Another great question that I also have, if I'm home alone all day, do I need to keep on washing my hands while I'm not in contact with other people besides my immediate family? Great question. It, it's a, yeah. So let me be the kind of doctor that is a little bit less, um, Technically, if you are all by yourself and you're home alone, you do not, I mean, theoretically, the risk is low. However, you will be shocked how much you actually touch stuff and your face and all sorts of things. And I think that it's just, again, in talking about recovery and getting back to society, 
I would just say put it into practice where you're washing your hands so frequently that it becomes second nature. So I think that you can rest assured that if you're alone and you're isolated in the sense that you're by yourself, you're not really taking a chance of infecting yourself. However, it is very likely that you will not continue these practices if you leave your house. And most of us will leave our homes. So I would just continue to practice incredible hygiene. Also wiping down surfaces, packages. You've been hearing a lot about what happens to people's mail and what should I do. And all those reasons, because you you handle things that come in from the outside unconsciously, practice washing your hands often. 20 seconds for don't forget. Sing happy birthday twice. That's the little trick. That's what I've been doing. Another question that keeps coming up is, is the virus airborne? What do we know about yeah. the, that? This is, I'm, I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's just, this has been, so we have a New England Journal of Medicine study that was done under very highly experimental conditions that showed if you, in, a, in an agitated environment, think the virus was like shaken up and then aerosolized, that it was in the air for three hours. That is um, the most common scenario in which you will have that exact same set of circumstances is actually in the hospital when someone is suctioning or doing a procedure that involves kind of intubating or ventilating a patient. So that's why hospital workers must have this personal equipment that I've been talking about. However, in a more kind of, I'll call it normal environment, walking outside, we do not think the droplets that someone coughs or breathes can travel farther than six feet. And we think the droplets probably just drop onto the ground and that they're not lingering in the air for hours. But but I'll tell you that the this kind of the fear is that there is this aerosolized small particles that could last for several hours. And that's another reason why I think that this idea of that the White House is considering of um, universal masks might also become a reality as well because of concerns about airborne transmission. But the most likely form of getting this virus is direct contact, hand to mouth, surface, hand, fecal to oral. That's also another way. So from feces to actual kind of touching and ingesting contaminated water, that type of thing, that's a more likely route. So I think the whole country has deep appreciation for your profession and are incredibly impressed watching the doctors and nurses and medical workers. I wanted to ask how um, how the medical profession is dealing with this kind of onslaught of an inc- a disease that no one had predicted. Yeah, it's uh, so Alex, every hospital, including all the ones I've ever worked at in my life, um, have kind of like a pandemic preparedness. Everybody has a preparedness guide of some kind, uh, either a bomb, attack, that type. Of, we all have them, but nobody has ever predicted or planned for something like this. And I think the part that's really difficult is that transmission factor where we know a number of healthcare workers themselves are getting sick. And nobody thought that we would have not have enough equipment to protect ourselves. So you've got doctors, friends of mine who are not using the restroom. They're not eating for 12 to 18 hours because they don't have enough equipment to switch out. And, and that, that can really weigh on you. So it's, it's definitely something that none of us expected, but I'm really proud of like my brothers and sisters who are out there truly on the front lines who are actually doing this every single day. And they're not asking even questions. I have two friends that are comas that are in 
comatose in ICUs, one in Washington State and one in New York. And their husbands and wives, uh, you know, they, they, they've all kind of said, you know, that their loved one gave their life for this or would likely give their life for this. And I think that's true. Um, but it is, it's gut-wrenching. And I think that's why people are, people in parts of the country are still kind of out going to bars, restaurants, and they're not taking it seriously. And I think there's enough evidence to show that we all have to take it seriously. Okay. With that, I want to say thank you so much, Dr. Patel. Um, our audience is incredibly appreciative for your time and your wisdom. Thank you. Thanks to Yahoo News medical contributor and former Obama administration official Kavita Patel and Yahoo News reporter Alex Nazarian for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.